that's Seda Sakaguchi, who is someone that our church has been supporting for a number of years. Uh, he's a church planner in Tokyo, Japan, and obviously the Olympics just ended over there today. Um, well, yesterday to time change, whatever. But uh, but the Olympics just ended over there, and that's another. If you've been reading some articles about that, that's another major source of uh, disagreement between a lot of the Japanese people and their government uh, with the Olympics still going on and most of the people being stuck in a state of emergency with the COVID cases kind of going up and then athletes are coming in and the people around the country aren't really allowed to do very much. Um, and so that's just yet another opportunity that we can pray for, um, for uh, our church, uh, for Seda's church and... Um, and the opportunities that they may have to speak into a culture that is uh, that's struggling a little bit with some opposition to their government. Um, we can also pray for them, uh, for particularly the men in that uh, culture, which Seda, as he was talking to me about a month ago, um, indicated that there is uh, some significant opposition to, um, to things that aren't... Uh, like cultural or worldly, but especially the men are very difficult to reach with the gospel. Um, so that's something that we can kind of pray for. And also Seda to have some refreshment and vision going forward for the next 5, 10, or 20 years uh, as planning a church in that culture, particularly in a major urban center in a culture that's, uh, that's very far from uh, Christianity and has never really had any sort of Western Christian influence. Uh, that's a very difficult and tough task to do, and just praying for him uh, to give him some encouragement would be, and some fresh vision would be really good for us to kind of commit to doing. Uh, and so as we are um, today, looking back on last Sunday when we sent some of our members out to Tanzania, uh, it's good for us to continue to remember and support um, not only uh, people that we're sending out, but also some people that we're financially supporting and the work that God is doing throughout the nations. Um, so today we're going to pray for Seda and his small church in Tokyo, uh, and then uh, we will head into our message for today. So let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we are very grateful and thankful, and unfortunately, I had the Bible in a bad spot, and it was kind of annoying, uh, but uh, we're very grateful and thankful for the work that you are doing in Tokyo, the work that you're doing uh, with Seda and his family, uh, moving from America about seven years ago, and planting them in uh, in a part of the world that needs you. And we're grateful for his faithfulness and the faithfulness of his family. Uh, we pray that you guide them and lead them and give him some fresh vision and, uh, and encouragement. Pray for reaching uh, all of the people in his part of Tokyo, uh, but particularly men who tend to struggle to um, fight through and break through from the culture that they have that's... Um, that's very strong and worldly. Um, and we also ask that you provide for him uh, some additional workers that really know the culture uh, and help them to seek after you and be able to reach that part of the world in a very, um, in a very effective way and that there's just uh, multiplied fruit uh, in a harvest that's very ready. Uh, we thank you for your gospel and the fact that you're proclaiming it uh, not only here, but to the ends of the earth. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, if everybody would open their Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, and Addie Fenska is going to read a passage for us from Scripture, and then we'll hear a message about it. Thank you.
this is from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. And it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the triumph of God. Trumpet of God. And the dead and the dead and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another in these words. Addie's my daughter, and I'm proud of her. She's one of my favorites. Well, keep your Bible open to First Thessalonians. Actually, one other quick note. I've got my Hopak swag on today. Uh, last week, we had the privilege of sending out a couple of families who are moving uh, from this congregation to serve in Tanzania at a school called Hopak, Haven of Peace Academy. And they gifted me this rad polo shirt, and I'm wearing it with pride today. Uh, and I'm wearing it with joy as we, re- as we kind of remember that sweet Sunday last week of sending out those brothers and sisters. Um, I got a message on WhatsApp today. Um, product placement right there, right? But I got, I got a, a message on WhatsApp today uh, from Chris and Amy saying they arrived uh, today, in, today by our standards anyway. I don't know what day it was in Africa, but they arrived. Four hours, and then sorry, we got something going on over here. Not sure what. Let me try this. Hmm. How about that? Let's see if that works better. Also, um, Aaron and Andrea and their family are at the airport right now, if I'm not mistaken, getting ready for a day and a half to. Um, of getting there to Africa. All right, hang on one second. Sorry about that. Do you know, uh, yeah, I can do that. How about I'll pick... um, Oh, you want just this? Okay. All right. Hey. Thanks for your patience, everybody. Let's hope that sticks with it. If not, we'll just switch to the handheld thing, right? So anyway, I don't even know where I was, but I thank God that our friends are in Africa, right? All right. So keep your Bible open, if you would, to uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We are returning to our sermon series about basic Christianity uh, as we're making our way through 1 Thessalonians. Uh, The book of 1 Thessalonians is one of the earliest books of the New Testament. It's written by a missionary team uh, of Paul and Silas and Timothy, and it's written to a church plant full of new Christians, a church plant which was probably no more than a year old at the time of receiving this letter. So it's kind of written from the mission field to a church plant in a mission field. Um, And it gives us a glimpse into the basics of the Christian faith. Through the years, many people have done many hypocritical things in the name of Christianity. 
And that disturbs me, and it disturbs many of us. And if that disturbs you, I understand. But the book of 1 Thessalonians gives us an opportunity to kind of peel back some of the layers and to get a glimpse of the core basics of the Christian faith. And today we've got a bit of a challenging topic. Uh, My son Titus, eight years old, asked me earlier today, Dad, what are you preaching on today? I said, we've got a heavy topic. We're going to talk about death. And Titus said, oh, I guess you got to talk about that sometime. (laughs) So if at some point in this message it starts to feel a little bit oh to you, maybe you can remind yourself of the wisdom of my son Titus. We got to talk about this at some point, right? It's it's a part of uh, our life in this fallen world, whether we like it or not. And so as much as our cultural habits might lead us to try to avoid this topic, as Titus has pointed out, we got to talk about it at some point. Um, I think back to the first funeral that I did as a pastor, which was in 2012, a funeral for our beloved friend and sister, Inger Hannes, after a life of significant Suffering beyond what most of us will experience. She died at, I think, 46 years old. Is this correct? 45 years old. Leaving behind her husband, Ray. And at the time, her two very young sons, Raymond and Matthew. I need to say at the time because Matthew's over six feet tall now, right? Of course, Raymond and Matthew are not little kids anymore. But here's, here's what we hate about death, right? Here's what we hate. Raymond and Matthew's mom is not here to see them grow up, right? Inger isn't here for the birthdays and the graduations and the celebrations. She doesn't get to see who her sons are becoming. It's a deep grief that we feel along with her family still today. And part of the question that our passage addresses is this, what does the gospel say to those of us who grieve the loss of dear sisters like Inger? Where I think back to the most recent funeral that I was a part of, the funeral of Jack Key, one of the founding members of our church and a friend and kind of a mentor to me in some ways for more than 15 years of my life. And after literally being hit by a truck, no joke, no exaggeration, and after a long battle with cancer, he finally ran out of breath and finally his heart stopped breathing. He left behind his wife, Nancy, and his four kids, all of whom I knew closely as they were growing up. And while Jack's body was withering away in his hospice bed and while he was wearing that oxygen tube underneath his nose and kind of gasping deeply for breath. I sat in his living room and we talked about death. We talked honestly about the fear of death and the way that the fear of death can play a role even in the hearts of Christians. We talked honestly about the hope of the gospel And then we also talked honestly about this other thing that Jack hated, the thought that his family would be left behind to grieve once he had gone to be with the Lord. Tears ran down his cheeks, imagining that he would not be at weddings and holidays in years to come. And our question is, what does the gospel say to those of us who grieve the loss of dear brothers like Jack? I think back to what might have been, well, certainly one of the most challenging funerals that I was a part of, the funeral of an infant named Simon Godfrey Kennard. King David believed that he would see his infant son again, 2 Samuel 12, 23. And in the scope of this sermon, there isn't time to explain why, but in the same way that King David believed that he would see his lost infant son again, I believe that we can expect to see Simon again 
And yet at their funeral, tears fell off of all of our cheeks as we silently imagined so many moments ahead that simply could not be the same. What does the gospel say to those of us who grieve the loss of dear ones like Simon? I've been involved with other tearful funerals as well for family members, loved ones, people in this congregation. I know many of you have loved ones who will come immediately to your mind today as well. And here's the fact, if we live long enough, if we live long enough, we will be invited to many more funerals. What does the gospel say to those of us who grieve loss after loss after loss of beloved brothers and sisters in Christ? To learn to answer that question, we're going to follow what God has to say to us here in the pages of Scripture on this topic. We're going to follow this passage, which gives us kind of a a plain and simple aim. And then two or three reasons why we should believe what is claimed here. And then one clear and simple application point. That's what the text gives us, and that's what we'll walk through together this afternoon. We'll begin with the plain and simple aim of this passage as it's described for us here in this text. You can see it right there in verse 13. The missionary team, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they're writing to this church of Christians and they're saying to this Christian congregation, we do not want you to be uninformed, which sounds at first glance like it's just going to be an information exchange. Except notice the aim that comes next. Why is this information going to be presented? We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. I should say something about that. This idea of being asleep is just, I think, a pretty transparent metaphor for being dead. Okay, like in our culture, we have other euphemisms. He passed away. In the Greek culture, they prefer the euphemism to say he's asleep, right? And we we choose these euphemisms to talk about this heavy topic of death because we don't even want to call it by its name. And the missionary team, maybe with a degree of sensitivity says, okay, in your language and in your culture, you talk about it as being asleep. We can use that language too. And so they say, listen, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have passed away. Why? Here it is at the end of verse 13. So that you may not grieve as others who do so that that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. That's the plain and simple meaning or aim of this passage, so that you would not grieve as Christians as those who have no hope. And there's a couple of ways as human beings or even as Christians that we can get this connection between hope and grief kind of confused. A few ways that this connection between hope and grief can kind of misfire. One way that this connection between grief and hope can misfire is if we say, because of our hope, we will not grieve. Um, I, I read a story this week from a Midwestern pastor over in Michigan. And he shared the story of going to visit a widow in his congregation. In other words, a woman whose husband had passed away. And he went to visit her and asked her a little bit about her life and what was going on. And shortly, this woman whose husband had passed away said to him, Pastor Jeff, God must be disappointed with me. And as a wise pastor would, He asked the follow-up question, Why do you think God is disappointed with you? And she answered, 
I know I should be happy for Martin. I know he's in a better place. But I just miss him so, so much. Now what she says there as her explanation is completely understandable, isn't it? We know that her husband Martin, if he's a believer, is in a better place. We, we understand that she misses him so, so much. But here's the thing. Somewhere along the way, this, this saint, this woman, this follower of Christ got this idea that if I really believe the gospel, then when my husband dies, I won't be sad about it. If I have hope, I can't also grieve. Because of my hope, I should not be really grieving over this. And so when her pastor comes to visit, she says, I'm sure that God is disappointed with me. You see how that's a misfiring of the relationship between hope and grief? And we need to notice that in the way that God's word talks about the relationship between hope and grief, it doesn't just say, we want you to have hope so that you won't grieve, period. See, if we don't grieve death, we're missing something important about the Bible's teaching about what death is and how it entered the world as a consequence of our sin. We're missing something about the Bible's teaching about death as the last enemy. Not a friend to be embraced and enjoyed, but an enemy to be rightly grieved or even despised. When our Lord Jesus Christ lived on this earth and He stood in front of the grave of His beloved friend Lazarus, what did He do? Jesus wept. The one verse of the Bible you memorized as a kid if you had to memorize one verse because it was so short. And yet it's so profound. John chapter 11 doesn't just describe Jesus getting a little teared up. It describes Jesus outraged at death and its consequences. It describes Jesus shaking with tears. I wonder how many churches in America would see a man crying, shaking with tears, And I wonder how many churches in America would look at a man crying to the point of shaking and say there's something wrong with that guy over there. But if we judge Jesus, if we're training women like the woman in the story I just told to say, I'm sure God is disappointed with me. We're missing something here about the way that God's Word talks about the relationship between grief and hope. Something is misfiring as we say, if I have hope, then I will not grieve. Let me be plain and straightforward with you. The Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 22, throughout the book of Psalms, in the example of Jesus over and over and over again. And here again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4.13. It gives us space to grieve. To cry. To grieve things that should be grieving. And so one way that this relationship between grief and hope can misfire. Is if we say to ourselves because of our hope we will not grieve. But. There's another way that this relationship between grief and hope can misfire. It's if we say functionally, because of our grief, we will not hope. And this seems to be closer to the problem that the missionary team is addressing here in this early Christian church. Notice what they say in verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. And the missionary team is not heartlessly suggesting that nobody on the planet has ever experienced any kind of comfort or any kind of hope. That's not what they're heartlessly suggesting. But what they're doing, rather, is they're accurately diagnosing 
something that all of us know and many of us have experienced. Apart from Jesus, grieving is awfully hopeless. And what the missionary team is saying to these people who live in a Greco-Roman culture that tended to not have a very high view of the afterlife and tended to say, well, your brother has fallen asleep. Let's move on. It's a natural process, right? Not much to be done about it. If you read the gravestones and things like that, there's a whole bunch of interesting history about the kind of stoic indifference toward death. Literally stoic. Stoics were a school of philosophy in their day. (laughs) The stoic indifference toward death that was common in that time and place. And in a culture where people tried to just be stoically indifferent to death, This missionary team writes to these Christians and they say, we know that in the culture around you, people are just trying to be stoically indifferent to it. But we don't want you to grieve that way. We want you to grieve in a different way. We want you to grieve, but we want you to grieve with Christian hope informing the way that you grieve. You see, in contrast with approaches that say because of our hope we will not grieve, and in contrast with approaches that say because of our grief we will not hope, in contrast with both of these, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, it points us to a better way. It points us to a gospel approach to death which gives us real grief with real hope. Not real grief or real hope, real grief. Why? Because death is an enemy for which Christ gave His own life to redeem us. Real grief. But not real grief that leaves us hopeless. Real grief combined in the Gospel of Jesus Christ with real reason to really hope. Not just to tell ourselves little platitudes. I hope He's moved on to a better place. I'm glad he's done with suffering now. No, real hope that goes every bit as deep as the real grief we feel in the face of real loss. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 opens for us a whole new approach to death. An approach which looks at death for what it really is and allows us to really grieve but an approach to death which looks at death for what it really is, defeated by the death of Jesus Christ. And therefore gives us real reason in Christ to hope. This is the main aim of the passage. It's plainly and simply stated right up front in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We don't want you to grieve as others who have no hope. We want you to grieve, to put it positively. We want you to grieve, but to grieve with Christian hope, informing the way you grieve. Now, why? And this passage doesn't just give us a direction. Okay, go and try your best to grieve with hope. Good luck. <laughs> it gives us reasons, solid, actual, historical, real facts that enable Christians to grieve, but grieve in a different way with hope. What are those reasons? A first reason for real hope in real grief is this, is because of Jesus' resurrection. Look at me at verse 14. Why should... Why are we freed up as those who believe in Jesus to not grieve as those who have no hope? Why are we freed up to grieve with hope? Verse 14, for or because, this is a reason why, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Why can we have hope 
real hope in the face of a real enemy like death because of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why this passage presents to us as its first and kind of foremost piece of evidence why there's hope. It presents to us the good news of Easter. In fact, some of you may be aware that to this day, Greek-speaking Christians have ceremonies on Easter Sunday in which they celebrate together by proclaiming to each other the good news that Jesus is risen, which in the Greek language sounds like this, Christos Aneste. And that's precisely the good news that Paul has put right in front of us here in this passage. In the Greek language, if some of you read Greek, you might be confused at first, conjugate and decline and you'll see it. But but it gives to us these exact words, Christos Aneste. You know why we can have real hope in the face of a real enemy like death? Because of Christos Aneste. Because Jesus Christ died, but now He's risen. Death could not hold Him. And there's kind of a missing piece in the logic here. I think Paul felt free to skip this piece because he had been with, or the missionary team felt free to to skip over this piece because they had been teaching these things in Thessalonica not long earlier. But if you will, the missing piece of the logic goes something like this. If we borrow language from Paul's own words in the book of 1 Corinthians, the missing logic is this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Why can we have hope? Because Christ is risen. Why does that matter? 1 Corinthians 6, 14. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead and He will raise us also. Or... 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Listen to this picture. If any of you are growing tomatoes, yeah? And you find your first ripe red tomato. What does that tell you? There's a lot more to come. It's the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruits. The first fruits. The first of the harvest, the first ripe red tomato, knowing there are many millions more behind it. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Why can we have real hope in the face of a real enemy like death for those who have fallen asleep? Because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Because we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But not only that, as Christians, we believe not only in the resurrection, we believe in resurrections, plural. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is committed to raising us. Not just our spirits and souls to go and float out in the stars. That might be interesting. I don't know. But raising like our physical bodies. Just as Jesus Christ got up, took off the grave clothes, walked out of the grave, said, here, you want to see the scars? They're right here. Let's eat some fish together. Just like Jesus was fully raised and restored to have stayed better than he was before, as Christians, we believe in the resurrection, which leads us to believe in many resurrections. Which leads us to believe. I'm not trying to be overly emotional here, right? But this is where this stuff affects me. It leads me to believe that one day we will see Jack risen again. No more oxygen under the nose. His body no longer ravaged by cancer and the effects of a truck accident. We'll see Jack restored in glory. See, because Jesus has risen from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As Christians, we believe in resurrections. 
God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And this exposes something that seems to be a fear in the church in Thessalonica. Maybe a fear that we don't wrestle with quite as much because we have the book of 1 Thessalonians to teach us better, right? But it seems they had a fear that maybe those who died before Christ returned would kind of miss out on something. Kind of like the way that we see Jack, we see Jack's body lowered into the grave. And we weep to imagine the weddings and the graduations that he won't be there for. It seems that the first century church was worried, what if Jack's body in the grave leads him to miss some really great stuff? What if he's missing out on redemption as a result of his body lying in the grave? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 tells us very clearly we believe that Jesus was raised. With the implication, we believe that we will be raised with Him. And when we are raised with Him, He will make sure to bring with Him those whose bodies we have laid in the ground. That's a first reason why we can have real hope in the face of real grief. A second reason why we can have real hope in the face of real grief is not only Jesus' resurrection, but also Jesus' teaching. Look at me, if you would, at verse 15. Verse 15 says, For, so here again we've got kind of a reason, why do we have confidence that when Christ comes again, He really will bring with Him all of those whose bodies have been laid in the ground? Well, here's why. Verse 15, Because this we declare to you by a word from the Lord Himself, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to be honest with you because I believe in honesty. I don't fully know. (laughs) What word from the Lord is he talking about? I'll tell you truthfully when I know the truth, and I'll tell you truthfully when I don't know the truth. I don't know for sure which word from the Lord he's referring to. It could be that Paul is like, you know, like the Lord spoke to me and I'm passing this on as a word from the Lord. It could be that Paul has access to a teaching of Jesus that was never recorded in one of the four Gospels. That could be the case also. It could also be the case, though, and I think this is most likely, that Paul is aware of things that Jesus taught about Jesus' second coming, and he's saying, you know that stuff that Jesus taught about his second coming? That's where we know this from. And so, in a sense, he's kind of summarizing the kinds of things that he knows that Jesus taught about his second coming, which would include things like this. I think we can get it up on the screen here behind me, right? It would include things like this from Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31. Jesus taught while he was alive, before he died, talking about his second coming. He says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Son of Man is Jesus' preferred language to refer to himself when he's speaking in this kind of discourse. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now let me pause on that for one moment. This is a heavy word. And we're going to get to the hope of it, but I don't want to just kind of ignore the heavy of it. The heavy of it is that according to Jesus, there will be a lot of grieving at his second coming. According to Jesus, his second coming won't mean happily ever after for everybody. Now, we need to get Jesus' view of the tribes and the nations clear in this. Jesus clearly and deeply believed that people from every tribe and every culture and every nation will be among the redeemed who will live with Him in joy forever. That's why a couple chapters later in the book of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus will say, Go therefore and make disciples among all nations. But when Jesus describes his second coming, his assumption, you can like argue with me if you want to. I'm just, I feel obligated to tell you what Jesus taught, okay? Jesus' assumption is that it won't spell happily ever after for everybody. 
The arrival of Jesus as judge of the nations will not be good news equally for everyone. It would lead to mourning and grieving on the day of judgment for many. Back to Matthew chapter 24. Well, actually, let me add this. I I know that's a hard word to hear, especially because many of us have friends or loved ones who have passed away. And as far as we can tell, they lived their lives in opposition to Jesus. Or maybe to be a little bit more honest about it, most of us have friends or loved ones and we don't know the end of the story, whether they finish the race in opposition to Jesus or in repentance. I have friends that I think of like that. I have loved ones I think of like that. I know many of us do. And while we don't know for sure what their final response to Jesus was, according to the teachings of Jesus, again, you can disagree with me, but I'm just going to tell you what Jesus taught. According to the teachings of Jesus, if we could bring back your friend, or if we could bring back your loved one today, and bring them up here onto the stage and say, what do you have to say? They would speak with a kind of wide-eyed urgency, appealing to you and to everybody else they care about, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God really is at hand. And I'm not just making that up as my opinion. Go and read Luke chapter 16, verse 27, and the story that unfolds around that. Okay, now back to Matthew 24. We're getting really nested in there. Matthew chapter 24. Here's Jesus' teaching about his second coming. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Do you hear how similar this sounds to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Angels, trumpets, Jesus returning. And then what will happen next according to Matthew chapter 24 and the teaching of Jesus? It's on the screen there. Those angels will gather his elect. They will gather his own from the four winds. As far as the wind blows, as wide as the heavens stretch, He will send out His angels to gather together those who have died and been buried or those who have been thrown over into the sea and been eaten up by fish or whatever it was. He will send the angels as far as the winds blow, as wide as the heavens reach, and they will gather together those who have died with Christ. This is the teaching of Jesus which assures us that this logic is trustworthy. If Jesus has been raised from the dead as the first fruit, surely we'll all be raised with him. And if Jesus taught and promised that as far as the winds blow and as wide as the heavens stretch, so far will he send out his angels to gather together everyone who has died in Christ to bring them together with him. That's a second reason we have to anticipate with hope. To have real hope in the face of real death. But there's a third reason here in this passage. And the third reason is not only Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' teaching, but also Jesus' return. And what will happen when He returns? We see that in verses 16 and 17. For, there's that word for again, so we're kind of going one layer deeper into the logic here. One layer deeper. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Which is God's way of assuring us they're not 
going to miss out on anything. I'm going to use a really crude analogy here. And some of you might be mad at me for using this analogy. And some of you are going to get this. If you get it, celebrate with me. If you're mad at me, chill out, okay? (laughs) Now, I want to go to baseball for a second because I love baseball, okay? So imagine that your favorite team is actually in the playoff hunt, which means Cubs fans, use your imagination. (laughs) Sox fans, you got it, right? Padres fans, got it, right? And then your star player gets injured. What do you want to know? You want to know, is he going to be back for the playoffs? If he misses a week, fine. If he misses a big series this week, okay. Is he going to be back for the big events, right? And in a similar way, I know it's a crude analogy and it's shrinking down glorious truth into something that doesn't fully hold the weight of glory. I get it. But bringing it down to this level... God's word is assuring us that while our loved ones who have been buried, who have died together with Christ, they might miss a few years. And I don't want to minimize the grief of saying, I wish they could be there for the wedding. I wish they could be there for the graduation. But God's spirit is assuring us through his word, they're not going to miss the world series. They're not going to miss the main event. They assuredly will be there. In fact, we know this on the authority of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We know this on the authority of the promise of Jesus that they'll be gathered together. And here we have this promise that when Christ returns, those who have died with faith in Jesus Christ, they will be gathered together with Him first. And then what happens next? Verse 17 Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And oh my goodness, there is so much sweet and precious truth in this one little verse here. And I feel the need to take a little risk, though. The risk is this. I don't want to lose you. And I don't want to lose the sense of the hope that this passage is meant to give us. But i got to talk for one second about a confusing detail here in verse 17. In the King James Version of the Bible, there's a word here in verse 17 which is translated as rapture, caught up. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be raptured together with them in the clouds. Why? To meet... uh, uh, Then we who are alive will be caught up uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. There's this idea of rapture which is suggested here in this passage. And there are, generally speaking, two ideas about the rapture. Okay, I'm going to do this simply, and I want to do this in a tone that suggests, can we be friends? Like the world sees enough negative stuff. We don't need to create divisions where divisions don't need to be created. But there are two views of what this rapture thing means, and I'm pretty confident I'm right. (laughs) Even though some of you may disagree with me, and that's okay. Can we still be friends? Here's the thing is, um, about 200 years ago, some people came up with this idea, less than 200 years ago, some people came up with this idea that this rapture would happen as a secret event where people would just disappear from the face of the earth and get taken up into heaven where they would kind of be stored away and kept hiding for some amount of time. And then... Then, eventually, Jesus will be like, all right, we've kept them hidden long enough. Now we're going to do this real um, return thing. I hope I represented that fairly enough. Um, That's one idea of the rapture. It's this idea that's this secret event. It's the idea that is in the books called the Left Behind series and all of those movies 
And here's the funny thing is like some of you may have become a Christian watching scary movies about what will happen when Jesus secretly takes people away and leaves others behind. When you get left behind, some of you may have got saved watching scary movies like Christian horror films about what it will be like when you're left behind. And that fear of God that that Christian horror film created led you to Jesus. If that's your story, I'm celebrating with you. Okay, I'm not dissing you. Okay, I'm cheering with you that God used that to save you. But for about 2,000 years, not 150 years, going back to the early church, Christians have read this passage. And in the time of the Reformation, Christians read this passage. And in the Reformed tradition of Christianity over time, Christians have read this passage and they have seen not a secret event in which Jesus comes and takes people and hides them in heaven until a later time, but they've seen this as a very highly visible event in which Jesus comes and he gathers up his people to meet him in the clouds. The dead are gathered together with him. And then what happens next? Then we who are alive will be gathered up with the dead. So those of us who are alive will be gathered with the dead in the clouds. Why? To meet the Lord in the air. Now there's something that we don't quite see in the English language and I wish we could see it more clearly. But it has to do with this idea of meeting the Lord in the air. Are you all still with me by the way? We're getting way deep in some weeds here. Some of you are locked in and some of you are like, oh my goodness. All right. Just if you're in the oh my goodness camp, we'll be back to the regular scheduled program in two minutes. Okay. But, um, but this word meeting the Lord, right? It has this idea in Scripture, In every time this phrase is used in the New Testament, it refers to a going out to meet somebody in order to turn around and enter with joy along with them. Okay, so the picture is like if I have a... Like if my parents fly from out of state to come and visit and I see their car pull up in the driveway, I walk outside to meet them. I give them a hug, and then with joy, I walk inside with them, right? My going out to meet my parents in the driveway is not to be like, I met you in the driveway, let's camp out here all week, right? I go to meet them so that we can turn around and I can escort them in with joy, or I can enter with them in joy. We see that in the parable of the ten young women, or the ten virgins that Jesus gives, The five who are awake, they go out and they meet the bride. And what do they do? Do they say, let's set up camp out here? No, they go out to meet the bride so that they can turn around and enter with... uh, The bride, did I say bridegroom? They go out to meet the groom so that they can enter with joy. Or elsewhere in the Greek language, this idea of going to meet has this idea of like when a military victory has been won and the general has gone out and conquered and he's returning to the city. People meet the general... Why? Because they say, let's camp out outside of our city and stay away from our house. No, they go to meet the general so that by meeting him, they can turn around and enter the city with joy along with the victor to celebrate his triumphal entry, right? And this language, which is used here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, I think fits much better with an idea of the rapture that has been common from the ancient church to the Reformation times and to today, which says when we are caught up together with Christ, it's not like some people will get to hide in heaven for a while. It's like we'll be caught up together with Christ and we'll enter with him in glory as he comes on this mission to make Make all things new. And can we be friends? Some of you might see that differently, and I I think that's okay, but I think I'm right. (laughs) And I still love you. And maybe we can have a longer conversation about that if it's helpful. But here's here's the thing. Let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming, if you will, right? Remember the risk I mentioned a minute minute ago that by talking about some details, we might lose the plain aim of this passage. The plain aim of this passage is not the missionary team writing to the church to say, I'm going to say some confusing stuff so that you guys can fight and bicker with each other from about the year 19 or from about the year 1830 until the year 2021. All right. It's not given so that we can fight and bicker with each other. It's why verse 13, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. So how do we get there? 
we come back to this picture and we realize, and you can disagree with me about how the actual sequence of events happens, but here's where the sequence of events leads. Pay attention to this. Jesus has been raised from the dead and will be raised with him. And he's promised that the dead will not be forgotten. They'll be gathered up with him first. And then those of us who haven't been gathered, who, who the dead are now gathered with Jesus, we're going to join him outside of the plane of this world. I don't know what it's like to levitate, but we're going to get to experience it, right? We're going to meet him in the clouds as it were. And then what are we going to do? At one point or another, some of you are like, it's going to be a thousand years later, whatever, all right. But like at some point, we turn around and we enter this world with him in triumphant glory. And we behold as he shouts out, behold, I am making all things new. And death is no more as far as the winds blow. And sin and suffering are banished and gone. And evil and darkness And the powers that have held this world captive for too long are cast into the lake of fire. And all things will be made new. The greatest joys of this life dialed up to 1,000 without the effects of death and sin and the fall holding us back. And then this precious truth At the end of verse 17, listen to this. Whatever else you think about verse 17, don't miss this. We will be, we will always be with the Lord. This is the glorious centerpiece of our hope. Not just that he he got raised and so we're going to get new bodies good. I'm looking forward to a new body. I'm tired of this knee with its arthritis. I am. But there's something way better than that. There's something even more precious than getting to see Jack and Inger and Simon and our loved ones in Christ raised again. I'm looking forward to that. But we, along with Jack and Inger and Simon, countless millions of other believers from across the centuries and around the world. Here's the main event. We will be with the Lord always. We'll be with Him. And what's the application point? The application point is very straightforward in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You know who needs to hear the gospel? You know who needs to hear the good news of life and resurrection beyond the grave? You know who needs to be encouraged that real hope is really possible in a world of real grief? Do people in Tanzania need to hear that? Yes! Do people in Cambodia need to hear that? Yes. Do people in Tokyo need to hear that? Yes. Do unbelievers around the world, more than three billion people who don't have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ in their city, do they need to hear this precious good news? Yes. You know who else needs to hear this good news about life? resurrection. You know who needs to hear the good news of Christos and Este? And that we will be with Him forever? And that He is going to make all things new? You know who needs to hear this? We do right here and right now. The people sitting in the same row as you need to hear that today. And this week, and this month, you need to hear this good news of grace. We all do. And so the application point when we understand the depth and the beauty of the hope that we have in Christ for life beyond the grave, when we understand that it doesn't just give us a few tools to shed a few fewer tears. 
it gives us a it gives us a real That we have the real joy of really sharing with one another over and over and over again as we remind each other through tears and in our grief and in our faint-heartedness and in our moments of weakness, we get to keep on sharing with each other, Jesus Christ is risen. Christos in that day. We get to keep sharing with each other. I know it's hard now, but we will always be with the Lord. We get to say with each other, I know it's awfully tiring to see the brokenness of this world over and over and over again. But he's going to make all things new. This is the hope that we cling to as Christians. And this is the hope that we celebrate together in the Lord's Supper. I want to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.